They know full well that there are many, 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 many pre-teens on Instagram uh, and they continue to collect all their data and serve ads up to them. Coming up on Carolina Connection, North Carolina's Attorney General says social media illegally hooks and harms kids. Good morning, I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Savannah Gunter. Also this week, Chapel Hill Mayor-elect Jess Anderson says she'll try to balance the concerns of both students and permanent town residents. Inflation is easing, but a lot of people at UNC are still dealing with food insecurity. And a UNC student is serving on the Board of Education of Boise, Idaho. I like UNC for the same reason that I love Boise schools, and it's because we truly invest in our students. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. Attorneys general from 42 states have joined forces to sue Meta, the parent company behind Facebook and Instagram. They cited concerns about social media's effect on children's safety and mental health. Carolina Connections' Samantha Hoffman reports on what led to the lawsuit and what social media users say about it. For the past three years, North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein has served on an executive committee of attorneys general investigating Meta, the parent company behind Facebook and Instagram. He does not like what he's found. Most social media sites make money by trying to dick kids, and that's problematic. They see young people not as children who need to be protected, but as dollar signs that need to be exploited. The lawsuit, now backed by 41 other attorneys general, calls out Meta as a threat towards children and teen mental health, partially through its addictive features. The infinite scroll, the like button, the disappearing stories, um, these are all things that they have spent billions of dollars developing because the longer kids are on, the more money they're making and the more information they have about the kids so that they can then serve up ads to make money off of the kids. This abundance of content is often harmful and unregulated, Stein says. Failure to remove um, very harmful content on eating disorders or drug misuse or even uh, sex. Social media sites have avoided past lawsuits due to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which prevents liability for user-generated content. However, the current lawsuit relates to the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which says you cannot collect data from children under the age of 13 without the consent of the parent. They know full well that there are many, 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 many preteens on Instagram uh, and they continue to collect all their data and serve ads up to them. This data collection is part of the Facebook and Instagram algorithm, a tool that allows the platforms to gauge the exact demographic of its users and feed them relevant advertisements, posts and accounts. This echo chamber of ideas keeps users on the platform for hours, such as UNC senior Manal Iqbal. She uses Instagram and TikTok which is also under investigation by over 40 attorneys general. Okay, we need to talk. Do you remember how you used to do Like Instagram, like before, I was probably spending maybe like two hours on it, like just like mindlessly scrolling in between classes or on the bus. TikTok was actually insane. Um, during the pandemic, like maybe nine, 10 hours a day. Instagram and Facebook have an age requirement of 13. Younger users must have the account run by a parent, though to prove so only requires a checked box. Iqbal admitted to adjoining platforms before she was old enough. I made it anyways. You know, there's always a way to get around that system. If successful, the lawsuit would invoke civil penalties on the company, 
which North Carolina state law puts towards public school funding. Stein says it would also require Meta to better regulate and explain its features. We want them to undo the things that they know are effective about addicting kids. The other thing is we want real transparency for parents about, one, what is the harm, the actual harm, as opposed to the the nonsense Facebook has been serving up about how it's not harmful, and two, what parents can do to protect their kids and how their kids are using these social media uh, platforms. Meta spokesperson Nikechi Neji says the company creates a safe and positive environment for teens and already has introduced new features to support users and their families. Neji says Meta desires to work with companies across the country to set standards for younger users and is disappointed by the attorney's general decision. However, Stein says it was the final attempt after a lack of involvement from the platform. We engaged Meta to see if they wanted to resolve this short of litigation and and fix the clear problems with their their platform. Uh, They did not want to do that. uh, And so that's why we've gone to court. This is just one of the many challenges Meta is facing, including a consumer lawsuit on the same topic and a European ban on targeted ads. In Chapel Hill, I'm Samantha Hoffman. Chapel Hill Mayor-elect Jess Anderson says she's trying to build bridges following what she says was the most contentious election in recent memory. She defeated fellow town council member Adam Searing in Tuesday's election. Anderson is a UNC professor of practice in public policy. She joins me now to discuss both her victory and what issues she will prioritize as Chapel Hill's mayor. Mayor-elect Anderson, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what was it like finding out that you were going to be Chapel Hill's next mayor? It was a little overwhelming. It was um, it was after a long day and a long couple months, and it felt a little surreal, honestly. I think I'm still letting it sit in, uh, um, sink in, but it was uh, pretty thrilling. One big concern that UNC students share living here in Chapel Hill is safety, uh, especially on places like Franklin Street. Is safety an issue here in Chapel Hill? Um, I think overall Chapel Hill is a very safe place. I think our police department and all of our public safety uh, departments do an amazing job. Um, College campuses have um, safety concerns across the country, um, but I don't think that Chapel Hill is a place that is unsafe or that I would be worried about in general. So what do you think could lead to some students having that perception of downtown Chapel Hill, just that they're worried about encountering people that might pose a threat to their safety? There's a lot being talked about in general, I think, especially post-pandemic, that we have more folks who are panhandling or potentially experiencing homelessness than we've had. Um, In general, those are folks who tend to be pretty harmless. We've actually, we know um, there is very strong evidence that people who are um, experiencing homelessness and or are having mental health crisis are more likely to be victimized than they are to victimize others. So I don't feel that they're unsafe. I think the bigger issue for me as mayor is really figuring out how we um, collaborate with the county to get our diversion center up and off the ground. The the county does have, I think, in its long-term budgeting plan, um, the, they're going to create a diversion center, which is where folks can go and get treatment, get connected with services, um, a place to be during the day. And I think that's really important just because we want to take care of our folks. Um, but I don't feel that downtown is unsafe. 
Turning now to the concerns of some Chapel Hill residents rather than uh, students here at UNC, some have complained about students that rent apartments and houses causing things like loud parties and litter. What would you say to those residents who have those concerns about UNC students living near them? Um, I think the first the first thing that I strongly feel is that we live in a university town. Um, and so I personally love our students. I'm glad they're here. I think the town is what it is because of the students. We would be a pretty uncool place if the university wasn't here. So I think that's a, a good place to start that conversation. Um, I think it's a good thing for students to to live in neighborhoods. I think um, that is actually the historic nature of Chapel Hill, that students um, would live in an accessory dwelling unit or a basement or attic or garage apartment um, all throughout town. Um, when I was in college, uh, there were definitely houses and you know, places that were louder than others. And I can understand folks not wanting to have huge parties near their, you know, young children who are trying to go to sleep. I think there's an enforcement conversation to be had, but I don't think that we should try and prevent students from living um, in a town that was built around a university. I think that that is not particularly reasonable, but I do think we can be thoughtful also about the type of housing we're, tar- we're trying to target. We know that um, 43,000 cars come in and out of that town every day of folks who are running the university and running the town. And so that middle income housing is really important to me. Um, and I'm, I think there are ways to target kind of young professionals, families, and others while also having continuing the really good conversations we've been having with the university about how we tackle also the issue that students don't have enough places to live. And we have students who um, actually are eligible for um, affordable housing and have, you know, real issues with affording Chapel Hill. So I think we need to be able to do to tackle all those issues, not just one. Chapel Hill Mayor-elect Jess Anderson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Henry. Inflation in the U.S. has gone down, but prices of food remain higher than they were before the pandemic. The UNC community is not immune from the economic changes. This year, a higher percentage of students reported that they are experiencing food insecurity. Carolina Connections' Sophia Cassini reports. But just generally the stuff at Aldi tends to be cheaper, so I try to get as much stuff from Aldi as possible and then get whatever I couldn't get from Aldi at Walmart. Senior Peyton Belvin, a public policy major, shops at Aldi every week. She says she tries to get the majority of her food there since she's found that it has the lowest prices. She says that she starts her shopping by looking for basic foods, but often has to pick and choose. I'm debating whether or not I want to get shredded Mexican-style cheese, but I'm also poor right now, and I'm trying to like not spend a whole bunch of money, so we're probably just going to hold off on that, because um, I still have a little bit left at home. She says it's difficult to predict how much she will end up spending before going to the store. I applied for food stamps last year, um, but got denied because my mom makes too much money for me to be considered, even though I'm the only one buying the groceries. Um, It's just frustrating because like I'm middle class, but I'm generally not uh, well off enough to pay for things on my own. But because of the tax bracket my mom is in, like they just won't give me any assistance whatsoever. Please scan an item, select another option, or finish and pay. The USDA defines low food security as reduced quality, variety, or desirability of diet, but with little or no indication of reduced food intake. While they define very low food security as reports of multiple indications of disrupted eating patterns and reduced food intake. 
Government resources for those experiencing food insecurity, like food stamps, require you to be below a certain household income. But most food banks and pantries don't. We are just want to be like a really open place for students, so there's no sort of like check or qualifications necessary to visit the cupboard. Um, you can just walk in and you're good to go. That was Carlisle Watts, the president of Carolina Cupboard and a junior business major and sustainability minor. Carolina Cupboard is a student-run food pantry located on the school's campus that is available for all students and faculty at UNC, regardless of their annual income or financial status. All they ask is to see your official UNC ID. Watts said that despite the cupboard being available to all students, the number of regular users is far less than the number of students at UNC facing food insecurity. There have also been surveys going on. Um, so there was one I think it was done a couple years ago that showed that 20% of UNC students face food insecurity. Um, and they just recently did another one. And I haven't heard the exact number yet, but it's higher than 20%, which is crazy because we're obviously not seeing 20% of um, the UNC population in the cupboard. While inflation rates have gone down, the price of food continues to climb. College students are more likely to notice and feel the impact of food price inflation, according to Professor Gerald Cohen, chief economist in the Keenan Institute of Private Enterprise. Cohen was the chief macroeconomist at the Treasury Department during the last two and a half years of the Obama administration. And he says that inflation is a difficult challenge to tackle with policy. The Inflation Reduction Act was not really about reducing inflation in 2022 is about doing things to try to help reduce inflation over the next 10 years. So most of the time, there's not much you can do to offset it other than giving people money that are hurt the most by it. The worst thing you can do is to say prices shouldn't rise. Because like if there's a shortage of something, the price should rise. And then people will spend less on it. Cohen says the best way to combat inflation is to plan and budget. For students that don't have an annual salary or steady source of income, this can be more difficult. I work like an hourly job, so I kind of never really know how much I'm going to end up getting paid. But regardless, it never really ends up being enough. So I kind of see my like find myself having to ask for like money from my grandparents or my mom because like I just don't have it. Um, and if I didn't, like I just won't be eating that week for real. Cohen says that the good thing is that food prices will eventually go down, but it's unlikely to happen in the immediate future. So for the time being, many students will have to continue to budget and make sacrifices. Please place the card into the card reader and follow the instructions. In Chapel Hill, this is Sophia Cazzini. UNC's first-gen student association helps people who are the first in their families to complete a four-year college or university degree. On Wednesday, they celebrated their achievements. Reporter Sia Zhang has the story. One in five undergrad students at UNC are first-generation. The First Gen Day provides student chances to share their stories of struggles and transformations to success. Casey Lee is a senior First Gen student who came to the event that day. I think it's a super good experience for me, especially I can talk with some of the students that are also the First Gen college students, and we have a similar background, so we have more to talk compared to others. One common challenge for First Gen students is how they feel overwhelmed when they first came to UNC. My parents didn't been through, so they don't know how this process works, and they don't know how difficulties and what kind of like such as application, tuition fee, how do I submit and everything. Kaylin Chikas is another senior first-gen student who transferred to UNC from a community college. She said she and a lot of other students feel imposter syndrome. It was kind of like a huge transition and I felt in a way of like 
I didn't belong here and like there were so many things to do and just having the privilege to come to this school made me feel like oh I'm not up to par as everyone else because I'm a non-traditional student but also a first-gen student. Stephanie Jin is the president of First-Gen Student Association. As a first-gen student herself, she also said she had a hard time when she first came here. A challenge that most of us probably have is trying to seek empathy from our family members, especially because they don't have this experience, so they don't know what we're experiencing. However, despite all the challenges, after three to four years at UNC, Lee, Chikas, and Jin all said they overcome many obstacles and made their own achievements. Probably what I'm most proud about is that each time is a learning experience for me and you get that sense of fulfillment every time because you're problem solving each new experience. Brittany Grant, the program coordinator for Carolina First, was a first-gen student herself when she went to UNC. She said her personal growth at UNC makes her believe that having Carolina First program can help more first-gen students navigate themselves. Our goal here is to provide that community that first-gen students can lean into so that they have that sense of belonging and they can create a network of support to help foster success during their time here. On the whiteboard for people to write down how they feel about being a first-gen, some people wrote making them proud, inspiring my sibling, one step closer to my dream, and navigating the new world. In Chapel Hill, I'm Xie Jin. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Savannah Gunter. The first year of college presents challenges for many students between school, work, extracurriculars, and social life. One UNC first year has the added responsibility of serving on a school board on the other side of the country. Shiva Rajbandari is an elected member of the Boise, Idaho School District Board of Trustees. He's navigating an unexpected balance of local government and college life. Caroline Horn has the story. All right, it's 6 p.m. Welcome to the Boise School District Board of Trustees meeting for October 9th. Shiva Rajbandari first became a climate activist in the ninth grade when he and some friends began working with Idaho Climate Justice League which helps to provide clean energy and sustainability plans for schools. Despite reaching out to his school board to raise awareness for climate action within schools, he felt that student voices were ignored. When I was meeting with the school districts like in Salt Lake and Miami Beach and Milwaukee and all, all these communities all across our country that had passed really strong climate action plans for the school district, what we saw time and time again was that these school districts really prioritized student voice and really cared about what students had to say. And they all had students on their school board. After seeing that the school board election fell seven days after his 18th birthday, Rajmandari decided to run and became the first ever student on the Boise School District Board of Trustees. He beat an incumbent and turned out over 20,000 voters to the polls. Rajbandari said that student representation should be an essential consideration within school boards and that he is frustrated by the lack of student voices in issues such as mental health. As a student, I saw these things firsthand every day in the classroom and it really provided a sense of urgency that I think adult school members, folks who haven't been in school for 20 plus years, don't understand. Brad Young, NC Institute of Political Leadership Executive Director, said that he has seen students have successful campaigns in local and state elections. 
I had a, a previous fellow that was a student at ECU and was also elected mayor of the small town that he grew up in. And uh, and trying to balance those two, you know, even for someone that was as dedicated to his community and, and well aware of the demands uh, of that office, just because other members of their family had been in it, it still proved to be a massive challenge. He said that some of the greatest challenges for student candidates can be establishing themselves within a party, garnering support in local communities, and having adequate funds to support a campaign. The location could be an issue. The, the demands of constituents could be an issue. Uh, it's trying to be able to have a personal life, but also if you're going to school and you're serving in this role, that's like having two full-time jobs a lot of times. Again, not a lot of financial incentive to, uh, to, to wear both hats. At the time of the election, Rajmandari had no idea he would be attending UNC across the country in North Carolina. He said that while zooming in for meetings with the board, teachers, and parents is difficult, the time commitment is not overbearing. Uh, Trustee Rajmandari. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, President Wagers. Thank you, Tyson and Lucy, for the presentation. Rajmandari encourages more students to consider getting involved with their local school boards and that any student could serve on the board. I like UNC for the same reason that I love Boise schools, and it's because we truly invest in our students. I think that there is a culture of care and community that exists at UNC that doesn't exist at other elite institutions, and I'm proud to attend a public school. His duties on the board include virtual meetings with students, parents, and teachers, two board meetings per month, and quarterly board workshops, all from his computer in his dorm room. He is serving a two-year term and does not plan to run again while he is at UNC. In Chapel Hill, I'm Caroline Horn. Now turning to sports, we are joined by Carolina Connections' Kinsley Brady and the Daily Tar Heels' sports managing editor, Lucas Tomei, to talk about today's football game against Duke. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Henry, and welcome back, Lucas. Hey, yeah, it's great to be back. So the Hills football team is hosting Duke for their rival game and their homecoming. Duke will be without starting quarterback Riley Leonard, and freshman Grayson Loftus will get the start. Loftus has only 86 passing yards on the season and one touchdown. How did the Hills defense keep pressure on the Duke's young quarterback? This Duke matchup will be a big test for this UNC defense that has tried to implement some changes under Gene Chizik, centrally two very faulty games against Virginia and Georgia Tech. Uh, Gene Chizik talked about how he drew up some schemes for the team to combat uh, tempo offenses uh, against the Campbell game. Um, but I think that was a sort of tune-up game to get the defense uh, sort of back into their mojo a little bit. So um, I don't think this Duke offense poses a huge threat to the UNC defense, but I think in a, in a rivalry game um, against an ACC opponent, UNC is going to try to implement those new changes and new schematics uh, against the Blue Devils on Saturday. Coming off a game where the Hills offense scored 59 points, how do they keep their offense hot? Yeah, you know, Mac Brown seems to say it every week after every postgame presser. He just goes, the offense is the offense. That's that's what he's been saying for the past couple of weeks, which is to say that they're just so consistent and such little has changed with their sort of like who, what you expect out of them. You know, Drake May is going to find that connection to Tez Walker. Uh, Omar and Hampton is coming to his own and is just one of the best running backs in college football right now. Um, they're sort of using Chip Lindsey's complimentary offense to their benefit, you know, going with what works. You know, if Omar and Hampton is hot, he's going to be running the ball down their throat. If if Drake May is just on fire, they're going to be finding Tez Walker in the end zone. Yeah, and now switching to basketball, men's and women's both opened their season with a win this year. 
Um, the men's are coming off a 16-point win over Radford. They had four starters score in double digits. Uh, we saw a bunch of the new players play and some of the transfers coming in. We saw the bench being used a lot. How do the Heels use the bench depth to their ability? Hubert Davis isn't known for really like digging deep into his bench, but I think they got so many pieces from the transfer portal this year that you're going to probably be seeing a lot of guys play, at least in this early non-conference slate, as Hubert Davis sort of figures out what that consistent rotation is going to be come January and February and March. Now to switch over to women's, they had a dominant 53-point win over Gardner-Webb. They had six players score in double digits. How do they keep their offense hot? I think the women's team brought in a lot of new faces, but still at the heart of their, you know, sort of core is Deja Kelly at the point guard and Alyssa Usby at the four. Um, I would look out for Lexi Donarski, a transfer from Iowa State. She was a former Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, but she's also just like a sharpshooter. She took nine three-pointers in that game, made four of them, tied with uh, Deja Kelly for 14 points. It's it's a similar storyline to the men, actually. You see a lot of shooting come in, uh, a lot of defense and playmaking come in from the transfer portal. Um, so I think you're just going to be seeing a lot of new faces making a lot of big contributions this season. Thanks, Lucas. Of course. Thanks for having me. That was Kinsley Braddy and the Daily Tar Heels sports managing editor, Lucas Tomei. Today, as we commemorate Veterans Day, UNC has joined the nation to honor the valor and selflessness of people who served in our armed forces. Among them are a significant number of military-affiliated students who are navigating the transition from military service to college life. Reporter Tiani Wong has the story. Free coffee and donuts. Free the coffee sip, and donuts. Was your admission. Courtesy of the Student Veterans Association. Outside the UNC Naval Armory, Caitlin Russell and fellow student veterans are extending a warm welcome to passersby, offering donuts, coffee, and a chance to pet a dog as part of their outreach to Carolina community for Veterans Week. Russell, a junior majoring in advertising and public relations, brings a unique experience to UNC. Having served her time as a public affairs photojournalist in the Air Force propelled her to seek new skills and advance her career at UNC. I joined with the goal of going back to school just because when, like before I joined, I wasn't able to afford going to college. So it was kind of a way to be able to like achieve that goal. However, Russell said the transition from military service to college life can pose different challenges to non-traditional students just because your life is so regimented in the Air Force and then you get out and it's like a free-for-all basically. And then also finding like the same kind of community that you have when you're in the military because you're just so like connected with the people around you. Russell's feelings resonate with fellow non-traditional student Roberto Escobar, a Marine Corps veteran pursuing a psychology major with plans for medical school. Now age 40, he finds himself older than the majority of his classmates. He said the significant responsibilities non-traditional students struggle differ from those of their younger peers. When I went in, uh, I was 18 years old, and you get a lot of responsibility thrown at you, um, you know, at once. You're on your own, and with your average 18-year-old, they don't have that pressure of like, well, I have my bills, I have my car payments, I have my utilities, I have my mortgage. Despite the hurdles faced by non-traditional students, UNC has a long history of supporting military-affiliated students. The Carolina Veterans Resource Center, catering to approximately 2,200 students, fosters a supportive environment through community building, general wellness, and academic support programs. 
Rob Palermo, the director of CVRC, said, "Organizing events like Coffee with a Vet and offering support systems are important to address the challenges faced by non-traditional students." We have a lot of folks who had to leave the military because they were medically retired because they couldn't physically do the job anymore, and they deal with mobility challenges. They deal with things like PTSD or traumatic brain injuries, and, and all of the support that needs to come around that. There is a culture of self-reliance in the military that often makes it difficult for people once they leave to ask for help around around mental health and wellness issues, and that's something we try to normalize here and support. The Orange County Veterans Day ceremony took place yesterday to honor those who served. Today, we give honor to all of our veterans. Chelsea Durante, an active-duty U.S. Army public affairs officer and a first-year master's student, said, "Veterans Day is a time to reflect on people who have made sacrifices." And for me specifically, I think it's a time that I kind of look back and reflect on my service and what it's meant to me. Blake Boniface, an active-duty Coast Guard officer and a second-year master's student, said, "The fact that there's just one day a year、um, is we don't have to be th- remembered and thanked every day, but." Um, th- the fact that we have one day a year is 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 nice enough, and that's all that really matters. In Chapel Hill, I'm Tianyu Wang. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. This week's technical director is Sierra Pfeiffer. I'm Henry Taylor, and I'm Savannah Gunter. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and X at UNC Connection, and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.